two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to The Flip Side. My name is Jeff Melly. I'm the head of research at Barclays. I'm joined today by Ajay Rajadox, our newly appointed global chairman of research. Thanks for joining me, Ajay. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Today we're going to talk about the economic and market implications of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, of course, this has caused a tragic humanitarian crisis, which is ongoing. But we're going to focus on the financial and economic effects, and specifically whether the invasion and the subsequent wave of sanctions that have been imposed on Russia will cause a global recession. Let's start with financial markets, Ajay. Russia is a large emerging market economy that's on the brink of default. Funding markets globally are showing signs of stress. There's talk of large commodity trading firms being in trouble. And Russia's effectively been ripped out of the global financial system. I think we could see big spillover effects for financial markets. And actually, this has happened before. Remember that back in 1998, when Russia defaulted on old Soviet Union debt following the dissolution of the USSR, There were massive disruptions to the fixed income market when a high-profile and highly leveraged hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management was forced to unwind. I don't think this is remotely similar, Jeff. Back in the 90s, remember, there were significant financial linkages between Russia and the rest of the world. But over the last decade, Russia has systematically reduced its external vulnerabilities. Public sector debt came down. Banks became net creditors to the rest of the world instead of borrowers. The country's firms reduced dollar debt. But as a result, the country now owes a very small amount of money to the rest of the world. Our estimate in bonds is just over $100 billion in outstanding dollar bonds issued by all kinds of Russian entities. Now, this sounds large, but in the global context, it's not. Just take one large U.S. bank. J.P. Morgan's long-term debt is several times as high. Further, Russia runs a current account surplus, which means that the money spent on foreign goods is less than the money foreigners spend on Russian goods. Or more simply, every month, more dollars come in than go out. It seemed for the longest time like they were building fortress Russia, an economy with low vulnerabilities. But as a result, there's barely been a ripple when Russia's two largest banks shut down European operations. Well, Ajay, that's a nice argument, but market prices appear to suggest that investors disagree with you. So short-term bank funding costs have jumped in the last couple of weeks by a lot. You can look at, for example, the spread between LIBOR, which is a short-term funding rate that includes bank credit, and the new SOFR, or Secured Overnight Financing Rate, which is a short-term rate that does not include bank credit. Look at the gap between those two. It used to be about five basis points, meaning banks borrowing five basis points more than SOFR. It's increased to nearly 30 basis points. Longer-term bank credit has weakened, too. The spreads of the large banks are up 40 to 50 basis points year-to-date. Isn't that a sign that there might be some more issues here? Funding spreads are wider, yes. But they are still below the levels they reached in the second half of 19. And look, risk premia are higher, markets are skittish, but they should be. There is a war in Europe. The fact remains, though, Jeff, that banks are very well positioned right now. Between excess reserves measured in the trillions, which provide enormous liquidity, and elevated levels of capital, we really don't see banks feeling any real stress. The bottom line is that Russia is a fairly small economy, about one-tenth the size of China. 
It exports a lot of commodities, but not much else. Stress in Russia will not cause a financial crisis. Now, we've been talking about the direct effects on financial markets. But there's an indirect effect on financial markets, too, that comes through the sharp rise in energy costs over the past couple of weeks. Just to put some numbers on how much energy prices have risen. In the past two weeks alone, the price of oil has gone up by 25%. That by itself is a serious hit to disposable incomes. But it comes on top of a steady rise in prices that began in early December. Remember, oil was below $70 a barrel in early December, and it peaked at over $120 recently. We've seen similar increases in natural gas prices, to some extent here in the U.S., but to an even greater extent in Europe. If Western consumers have to pay more in energy, they have less money to spend on other things. And it's not just oil and natural gas. Russia and Ukraine together produce a large share of the world's wheat, barley, corn, fertilizers, a whole bunch of other commodities. Food prices are skyrocketing as we speak. And all of this comes at a pretty dangerous time for the global economy. We're more or less through the recovery from the initial economic downturn linked to COVID. And not only are we through that, the fiscal stimulus that helped boost that recovery is now in the rearview mirror. We're facing the highest inflation we've had in decades, which central banks need to contend with, with no stimulus in sight, policy actually about to get tighter. I think that all of this increase in energy prices could actually tip the global economy into recession. I agree that the real place to worry about Russia-Ukraine is the energy impact. And I do think there are real risks of a modest recession in some major economies. But not the U.S. and not large EM economies either. Well, Ajay, I noticed that you avoided mentioning Europe as a place where we're not likely to see increased recession risk. Actually, that's the part of the world where I think the recession risks are the greatest. Europe has two things working against it. First, it imports a huge amount of energy, including a substantial portion from Russia. That, look, that part is true. Europe does get about 40% of its total natural gas consumption from Russia, and it is particularly important for heating gas. Yeah, so and the, the shock to the energy costs in Europe has been really large, much more than we've experienced here in the U.S. Gas, petrol, I guess, at the pump in the U.K. is already up 25% from just a few weeks ago. Natural gas futures prices have almost doubled in Europe. Moreover, Europe has had low potential growth to start with. They have less of a buffer than the U.S. and other economies have. They've never really fully recovered from COVID before getting hit with this new shock. And they have a big refugee crisis that's playing out. I agree that the risks of a recession have risen. I also agree that that is more so in Europe than elsewhere. But there are a few major offsets here, Jeff. First, services consumption still has room to recover in Europe. Remember, European households have between 8 to 10% of excess savings over and above what they would have saved if COVID hadn't happened, simply because they spent far less on services than normal in both 20 and 21. Yeah, but aren't those savings concentrated in specific households with high income and high wealth? Those are people who, generally speaking, have a lower propensity to consume those savings. That is true too, but the number is still so large. It at least puts a floor under European consumption falling too much. Also, the euro area's fiscal stimulus was less front-loaded than the U.S., which means some government spending will support growth this year. Germany especially will also get a boost from auto production picking up. Last year, fewer cars were produced simply because parts were not available. And finally, I think European governments will shield consumers to an extent from energy costs, absorb some of it themselves. 
So yes, we took down EU growth by 170 basis points for 2022 after the war started, but we still have Europe growing a little about trend in 2022. Yeah, I worry AJ that the risks here are all to the downside on our forecast. Just recently the US imposed a ban on Russian oil. What if Europe feels like they have to do the same thing and not just for Russian oil but also for natural gas? That could lead Europeans having to actually ration energy. There's almost no place else that they could get it. Um, and then I think a recession becomes almost uh, almost a certainty. Europe is critically dependent on Russian energy, no question. And if there is an abrupt shutdown of Russian energy exports into Europe for for whatever reason, we will get demand destruction, the chances of a recession will rise sharply. But that is why Europe has ruled out any such ban, Jeff. And the Russians on their side, well, they need the hard dollars, so they are unlikely to cut off energy exports either. All right now, what about large emerging market economies? Just ten years ago, in two thousand and twelve, there were food riots in emerging market economies sparked by the Arab Spring. Now we look at Russia and Ukraine. You could, I think, feasibly describe them as like the world's breadbasket. There are certain countries, particularly emerging market countries, that are very dependent on on wheat and other grain imports from Russia and Ukraine. Look where wheat prices are. That is a fair point. One difference though is that in this cycle many emerging economies don't have remotely the kind of fiscal and monetary stimulus that the west put in place over the last 2 years. In addition many of them started tightening well before the fed which means their starting point on inflation is quite reasonable. Look at the largest one China. Their CPI is below 2%. Their central bank is easing policy to support growth. Indian inflation is between 5 to 6%, which is again very manageable for an emerging economy. Food prices will bite, but this is not 2012. Let's turn to the US then. I mean, look, oil prices are effectively global, which means that we feel it here too. For example, gas prices are at multi-year highs. Gas prices actually are a big deal for the US consumer. We drive a lot. Uh, it it ends up ref- being reflected in measures like consumer confidence with which track gas prices very closely. Isn't this price going to weigh on our recovery? See the thing is, the US is not an energy importer anymore. So yes, US consumers will pay more, but most of that money goes right back to other parts of the US economy where it is used for more investment, hiring, etc. It's not a perfect one for one, but the impact of the oil hit to the US is far far less than for Europe. We expect only a 30 basis point hit to full year GDP growth in the US from the rise in energy costs. This is not the 1970s, Jeff. Well, it is true, Ajay, that the US is no longer an energy importer, but I think there are two constraints keeping that from having the same sort of benefits we've historically seen when energy prices go up. The first is that US energy companies have been displaying a remarkable amount of capital discipline. They're not investing during this boom in part because their investors are tired of getting left hung out to dry during the inevitable bust. And second, the Biden administration has put increasing constraints on the domestic energy industry in terms of what they can produce and where they can produce it that also might keep the normal cycle of investment and job growth from happening. So look, Jeff, my point is that that money from rising oil prices still largely stays within the US economy and it does come back to the economy if nothing else it comes back through things like higher dividend payouts the fact is i also think these constraints you are talking about maybe they matter at the margin but they don't change the overall picture which is that the united states is far less vulnerable economically to rising oil prices than it was a decade or two decades ago 
You know, it's also funny, Ajay, that you mentioned the 70s because there's something else that's different about the U.S. from the rest of the world right now that's also sort of akin to what was happening in the 70s, and that's that our inflation picture is far worse. U.S. inflation, and especially services inflation, which is stickier, is much higher than it is in Europe. And now, with energy costs skyrocketing, the inflation picture is actually going to get worse. That means the Fed cannot back away from tightening interest rates, even if consumers are hurting. Now, for years and years, the equity markets and also the economy have counted on the so-called Fed put. That's when the U.S. Federal Reserve kind of comes to the rescue during times of economic stress by cutting interest rates. But that put is missing. Yeah, the Fed does face a challenging outlook. But that's why we think they will hike five times this year, even as growth is slowing down. And in terms of the impact on the economy, what matters more is not how quickly the Fed hikes, but where the Fed stops. Markets have stuck to their belief that this cycle will end with roughly a 2% Fed funds rate. And we generally agree that has not changed since the war started. Well, look, Ajay, my point is that we don't have a buffer. Let's look at the COVID experience. The recession in the U.S. was pretty sharp, but also pretty short because we benefited from enormous fiscal and monetary policy stimulus. We had unprecedented spending. The Fed reacted immediately and very aggressively with rate cuts and asset purchases. All of that staved off the worst of the downside associated with COVID. But now we have capacity for neither type of stimulus, both because of sort of budgetary issues in D.C., plus the inflation picture constraining the Federal Reserve. It was one thing to suggest the Fed could engineer what we call a quote-unquote soft landing, which means they get to hike rates without causing a, a recession. So we thought that was possible before when the global economy was surging. Global growth was over 6% last year. But now, I'm not so sure it is possible. An accident, i.e. a recession, seems like a much more likely outcome in the midst of a hiking cycle, given all of the volatility that's happening globally. I would say that you need to acknowledge that a lot of tightening has already happened. The Fed looks at tightening as more than just front-end interest rates. Financial conditions like credit spreads already are wider. Equity markets are down 10 to 15% from their highs. I think markets have priced a lot in, both related to Russia and the Fed. And look, once again, and I, I know I keep harping on this, but U.S. household balance sheets are in really good shape, Jeff. The jobs report showed that the labor market is recovering strongly. The U.S. jobless rate is 3.8%. We've averaged almost 600k jobs a month for the last three months. This economy has too much momentum, too much going for it to go straight into a recession. The risks have risen, yes. But the Russia-Ukraine war is not going to cause the U.S., or a global recession. Well, I hope you're right, Ajay. And I'm sure we all hope that there's a cessation of hostility soon. We will see how things play out over the next couple of months and quarters. For now, clients who want to understand the economic impacts of the Russia-Ukraine war can look at our latest Global Macro Thoughts Weekly, entitled The World Faces a Supply Shock, available on Barclays Live. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Flip Side. For more insights on this topic, Clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com/cib.